Last week, I was delighted to chair a conversation between Ben Lerner and Yakuta Ilikovacevic on the writing and translating of Ben's novel, The Topeka School, at the conference Ben Lerner, Edge of Genre, organised in Paris by six collaborating institutions. Those are CY Sergi Paris University, Université Paris Cité, University of Warwick, Université d'Oran, Université Paul Valéry Montpellier Trois, and the University of Chicago. When the Topeka School was published in late 2019, its concerns, at least as I read them, felt almost jarringly contemporary. Then came the pandemic and Trump was voted out and talk for a while was of how our world had changed for good, as if the space and time from which novelists had previously been writing was, if not some kind of prelapsarian idyll, then certainly an antediluvian landscape, and one that had been permanently reshaped by the floodwaters of history. And yet, rereading the Topeka School in anticipation of that evening, I was struck by how so many of those concerns, of suppressions of male feeling and explosions of male rage, of the power and so danger of language, and of our sense of reality and how it can suddenly shift or realign, have not only persisted in their relevance during the four years since the book's publication, but bedded in. These continuing contemporary resonances are all the more intriguing for a book in which most of the action takes place in the 1990s. For it is also the origin story of Adam Gordon, the equal parts compelling and tiresome narrator of leaving the Atocha station, as he navigates the end of high school and his imminent transition into the world of adults. Translators are generally the most insightful and interesting readers of a text, which was why we were so lucky to have Yakuta Ilikovacevic with us. As well as Ben's novels, Yakuta has translated works by David Foster Wallace and Anna Burns. She's also an accomplished novelist in her own right. Her debut novel, Corps Volatile, won the Prix Goncourt in 2008 for Best First Novel, and her most recent novel was published in English as Night As It Falls by Faber. Before the conversation, Ben read one of my favourite sections from the novel. Enjoy. So, well, I'll just read for a few minutes and then um, we can have a conversation. But I, yeah, I won't, I won't thank each person individually, but I really am humbled and grateful and look forward to getting to speak with all of you. Um, I, I, this, is J, this is Adam Gordon's mother speaking to her adult son, presumably about some of his formative memories from her perspective. One took place at Dylan's. No, actually, let me start a little early. See, I've already ruined everything. <laughs> um, let me start here. Then there were the men at the store at Dylan's. Do you have any memory of this? You and I went shopping at Dylan's most Sundays when you were in kindergarten. You loved grocery shopping for some reason. And we were often approached while I was pushing our cart around, either by a man or a woman. If it was a woman, it was always gratitude, often very moving. Your book saved my marriage. You changed my life, etc. The woman and I would then press hands. I remember reading in Russian novels about how so-and-so would press the hand of an acquaintance in a moment of emotion, and I never knew what that meant, but that's what I did with these women. We weren't going to embrace each other, that wasn't going to happen in the American Midwest, but just shaking hands, which seemed very masculine, very businessy, felt insufficient. So we took each other's hand and applied a certain pressure, communicating solidarity through that touch, and then went back to our shopping. But the men, they didn't call me a cunt in public, and sometimes they didn't say anything at all, but just let it be known by a look or snicker that they knew who I was. But one or two did approach me, very polite. I hope you're proud of yourself, home wrecker. I feel sorry for your husband, that sort of thing. I'd say, have a good day, and that was it. 
There were also the faxes the Phelps started sending out. One had my picture with horns drawn on it, called me a Jezebelian switch-hitting whore, explained I used my pulpit to encourage sodomites who were worthy of death. I think we still have it somewhere. But then the Phelpses attacked anybody from the foundation who got attention since we refused as an institution to acknowledge the evil of homosexuality. This was unpleasant, but not much more than that. Needless to say, plenty of women suffer a lot worse. Frankly, I think I was flattered by this measure of my book's reach, its effect. Even the ugly aspects of recognition can give you a little rush. And I was just generally amazed by the sensation the book had become. But fame of any sort, like a birth or a death, changes every relationship. I was naive about this at first, but I would learn, and I think I should have done more to shield you from the men. You had a couple of episodes around them that I think were linked to them and to the changes more generally. One took place at Dylan's. I used to ask you to go find stuff on the list we'd made together and to bring it back to the cart that we'd check it off. You loved the responsibility, felt very grown up, Okay, we need salt, I'd say, where is the salt? And then I'd kind of point you in the general direction and you'd either recognize the Morton Shaker from home or if necessary, ask somebody who worked there with your practice cute formality. Would you be able to show me where to find the salt, sir? You sounded almost British. Anyway, one day I asked you to get the milk, 2%, the one with the blue cap, and you went off to do it, but you didn't come back for a while and I grew concerned. When I found you, it was probably five minutes later, though it seemed like half an hour, you were wandering around in some other aisle crying, almost hyperventilating. I hadn't seen you so upset in a long time. There are men behind the walls, you finally managed to say. There are men back there hiding in the walls, laughing at me and trying to grab me. I was confused and also panicked, enraged. What men? Who tried to grab you? Who touched you? I really couldn't understand what you were saying, but eventually I said, show me where this happened, and you led me to the dairy section. Where are the men who bothered you? I demanded, and you just pointed at the milk case. I didn't know what was going on. There are no men in there, I said, smiling to calm you, although I didn't feel calm, and I opened the glass door to show you took a gallon of milk from the shelf, and that's when I heard the voices behind the case. After a moment of vertigo and echo of your own terror, I realized that there were workers who supplied the cases from behind, that the back of the case was some kind of movable partition that opened onto the storeroom. I don't know if they laughed at you or even tugged on the gallon of milk you were trying to remove as a joke, or if they were just working and talking and maybe laughing among themselves, but now I understood what you'd seen why you'd freaked out. I calmed down, tried to explain the situation as slowly and clearly as possible. You stopped crying, but you were still upset. What I was describing, that there were men and women, I insisted working behind the walls, still sounded plenty ominous to you. And is this the analyst in me? I think it was worse for you that it was milk that you were trying to procure as you were playing at being grown up the nourishment I once gave you from the breast. You had a few nightmares about it in the following months, that there might be men in the walls, evil men. And then there were these men calling over the invisible wires. Klaus had an elegant and ridiculous Marxist reading of it as evidence of your precocious intuition of alienated labor. But it was clear that you were picking up on all the toxic masculinity swirling around. Dad also wondered if you felt he couldn't protect the family or something, if you were starting to contrast Dad's gentleness with the Marlboro Man culture around us, a contrast made worse by the fact that I was now the chief breadwinner getting famous, and people were always asking what that was like for Dad, as if it were obviously emasculating, as if it were his loss. 
I also think you just knew that whatever was happening with my book, with the attention was destabilizing, that it involved big changes. Anyway, the dreams didn't last. Then the chewing gum thing happened. I bet you won't put this in your novel. <laughs> One night, Dad and I are watching a movie. It's many hours after your bedtime, and as far as we know, you've been sleeping soundly. And then you appear in the doorway, naked, totally calm. And I'm like, what is it, Adam? And you say, matter-of-factly, like we're just chatting. Oh, I was going to the potty and chewing gum, and the gum fell out. You'd recently been allowed to keep a pack of gum yourself with the understanding that you'd ask us before chewing any of it. You loved gum. Dad had kind of drifted off, wasn't really watching the movie and said without opening his eyes, well, did you clean it up? And you didn't answer. And I sensed that something was wrong. And I switched on the reading light beside the bed and said, come here. When you were next to me, I saw that you had carefully wrapped your penis in scrotum and chewing gum. I mean, you must have chewed it, flattened it out, worked deliberately to enclose yourself. Nothing was exposed. Oh my God, I said, touching the gum, which had hardened. What is it? Dad said, totally awake now, concerned, rolling over, a pause. Then we both started cracking up. We couldn't help ourselves. And you laughed since we were laughing. You were relieved you weren't in trouble. How did this happen? I asked picking you up and depositing you on the bed between us. And you had your rehearsed line. The gum fell out of my mouth and got stuck on my body. <laughs> you were in this stage of using body to refer almost exclusively to your penis. If you said my body itches, you meant your penis. Adam, this couldn't have just fallen out of your mouth, I said. You did a really good job wrapping this, Dad said, trying to begin the process of disentanglement. It must have taken a long time, a lot of pieces. But you maintained you'd been on the toilet just chewing away and that it fell out of your mouth and voila, you had this perfectly packaged little package. It was funny until we realized that we couldn't remove it. And since you entirely covered your urethra, you weren't going to be able to pee, which is serious. So after a while, dad was still chuckling, but I was starting to worry. We called and woke up Eric since he was a real doctor and asked him what we should do. What followed was an hour or so of alternating comedy and panic where we were using Vaseline, peanut butter, olive oil. I can't remember what finally worked, but we got it off, gave you a gentle lecture, told you, you were all we were all taking a break from chewing gum <laughs> and then went to bed. I think I'll just stop. stop Thank you so much. Um, we're going to, I think, touch on quite a few of the different things that came up in that extra um, yeah. as the conversation goes on. But I, I'd like, and I'm very conscious um, when asking these questions, that the Topeka School was published in 2019, so probably was conceived several years before that. Um, so I, um, so please uh, feel free to veto any kind of questions that kind of require you to reach back into the mist of time. But I, I'd like to, to begin with the fact of, I guess, why the Topeka School is an Adam Gordon novel. So before with the Atocha Station, it was our Adam Gordon novel. Then 1004, there was the fictional creation, Ben Lerner. And I'm just curious to know why you returned to this narrator, if indeed you consider it a return, or to this character, rather, if you consider it a return to the same character, what informed that decision? Yeah, I mean, I think there's like kind of a, I mean, um, there's like a formal 
answer, which has to do with the fact that I think in threes, I mean, it's almost like I, I can't, this is not like an intellectual position or defensible, but I just have kind of written these two trilogies, although this book wants to also in a way link back up with my first book of poetry and make them into one kind of larger syntactic unit or something. So I think, so I think in part, I felt like I, I wanted to produce a third term in a sequence, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to just do the next thing after 1004. And then what I felt like I most wanted to write about was something like prehistory. Mm -hmm. So my idea, and so far as I knew what I was doing was to produce the, the end of a trilogy or maybe the end of a sextet, but to do it by writing the prehistory mm -hmm. of all the other books. And mm -hmm. of course, prehistory is, is the, the, the theme, the prehistory of a voice, the prehistory of the bankruptcy of American political discourse and repetition and modulation across generations. So I, I think it became writable for me when that kind of indefensible formal proclivity to write in these kinds of sequences or cycles met the theme of prehistory and then and then suddenly it kind of opened up you know i mean i had written this essay many years ago long before i wrote the book about debate um competitive debate which was really the roadmap for the novel and i tried and failed to write the novel over mm. over many years and then some things shifted for me that that I think made it that made it writable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And as is kind of a follow up to that, they're obviously uh, leaving the Atocha Station and Ten O Four are written in the first person, whereas the 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 character of Adam Gordon is there are some first person sections as we heard, uh, but the the character of Adam Gordon is in the third person. And I'm just curious to know a little bit about uh, what informed that decision. Yeah, perhaps whether it connects to the the fact that you're reaching to this prehistory, whether the kind of the distance. Yeah. Is, is, is something yeah, that was really, when it became writable for me was when I stopped trying to write that the the adolescent Adam Gordon in the first mm -hmm. person because I I couldn't I wasn't equal to actually capturing the absurdity of the first person speech that I would mm -hmm. have or, or I could I could have written a comic novel mm -hmm. but I couldn't produce tones that could have held more of the complexity oh. that I wanted to produce but I also realized that I could. I found it easier to remember a version of my childhood from the perspective of a version of my parents right. than I did to actually try to inhabit whatever kind of mental state I had at the age mm -hmm. of 16. Mm -hmm. So it was actually realizing that the, I, had, I had more access to the voices of the older generation mm -hmm. than to that moment of elastic adolescent voice is kind of what made it writable. But okay. I resisted that for a long, I mean, that was very counterintuitive. Uh -huh. So I kept trying to write it in the first person, and that's part of why I couldn't couldn't write it. I wonder if also it wouldn't have allowed you the, which I'm, I'm sure we'll come to talk about later, that sort of, that historical perspective, which particularly the end of the book uh, feeds into, like I guess perhaps it would have perhaps anchored this teenage experience too much in the in the present to, to allow this almost sort of zoom yeah, out that we get. I think that's right. And I also just think that in all the fiction, I, mean, I haven't written that much fiction, but in all the fiction I've written, like part of the effort for me is to figure out a way to write. I mean, 1004, I think, talks about this explicitly, like in the first and third person simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And this was like a way to, you know, I, I mean, it, I, I guess the other thing to say is that it's clear. I mean, I think it's clear that even in the sections that are most mimetic of the parents' voices, there are tears in those voices mm -hmm. that that are forms of acknowledgement that it's actually the older Adam Gordon trying to ventriloquize his right. parents. So even in the third person sections, they're very much first person sections. And the goal is not to pass off 
perfect polished mm -hmm. images of the older generation's voice, but to actually make felt the weird <coughs> emotional stakes of that mm -hmm. ventriloquism, speaking in the voice of the mother to the son, uh -huh. uh, and thinking about just the voices and intergenerational mm -hmm. technology you yeah, know, is a yeah. big theme of the book. Yeah. And the, the way you've just described it then, it sounds like it would pose a huge <laughs> challenge to a translator. Um, so yeah, could you tra translated, uh, you've translated all of Ben's novels yes, so I far. Have. Yeah. Uh, could you just talk a little bit about the, um, I guess the process, first of all, of sort of getting into, into Ben's voice, and then particularly with, um, with the Topeka School, uh, perhaps the challenges of addressing the uh, the different voices and also the sort of the fragmenting of voices that Ben just talked about. Um, yeah, at this point, this is the third uh, novel by Ben that I've been lucky and honored to translate. It sounded like it might go the other way. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's it's truly a joy, and it's a joy because the books are very good, but also because I've uh, developed an intimacy with a specific style, a tone, and a voice. Mm -hmm. And it becomes much easier for me to switch into Ben Lernerese, I mean mm -hmm. French Lernerese, mm -hmm. of course. And you know, there's this theory that when you're bilingual or speak multiple languages, your brain has to choose, anytime you speak out, mm -hmm. your brain has to choose the language in which you will um, express yourself. Translating is a bit of the same thing. Every time you have to translate a sentence, you have to choose and when you have the Ben Lerner slash Adam Gordon voice developed, it becomes easier and it sort of takes control. Um, why? Because the prose is so highly controlled. I mean, you have to admit it is, right? <laughs> um, that it imposes its own logic and um, its necessities onto you. I'm not saying it's easy and I'm not saying it's, um, uh, it's a, a walk through the park. But um, but it sort of makes sense. You feel it. You feel it's. I don't want to get too mystical here, but the text lets you know that yes, this is it. This is the Adam Gordon we want to channel uh, today, and yes, this is his mother, and this is the version of her we want to channel today. Um, but it comes through a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. I think the, the, the leaving the Atocha station. It took me as long to translate the Atocha station as it took me to translate both the uh, both other novels mm -hmm. so it's just you tune in and then you have to pray to not tune out of it mm -hmm. and in order to allow yourself to tune in do you return to your previous translations before taking on the um, new project yes i tried not to but yeah i my own novels i never hardly ever uh, reread mm -hmm. because it's very painful and mortifying <laughs> Um, translations, yes, I have to go back. And I have to go back because the same way readers uh, develop a, a sort of fondness or intimacy, sense of intimacy with some of the, the characters, um, Adam Gordon, for instance, I, the translator, develop an intimacy and a fondness for some of your words and input. Input is a Ben Lerner word. <laughs> so I have to go back <laughs> to um, leaving the Atuja station because I know there's... Um, Incredness there as well, and I have to see what how I dealt with it there, and if it seems appropriate to mm -hmm. apply the same uh, solution here. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying apply yes in the almost mathematical sense because mm -hmm. there's um, some scientific rigor to it. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And just concerning the um, the thing Ben spoke about towards the end there about sort of so even when he's writing in sort of the first person as the parents, mm -hmm. there's sort of this 
assumption or this kind of this this implication that it is Adam Gordon sort of channeling his uh, mm-hmm. his parents' voices. How much do you feel you need to sort of articulate that kind of thinking to yourself to be all in order to be able to sort of uh, to successfully translate the novel, or is it perhaps a channeling of its own kind? It's a channel. It's a it's a twice removed form of channeling. Mm-hmm. The thing is, you never want it to sound like parody. You never want mm-hmm. it to sound like um, someone. You said ventriloquizing. But it's not exactly that, is it? Because ventriloquizing signals itself in other ways. Um, So you have to find the French equivalent. And by finding the French equivalent, I mean the French equivalent of of tone, of rhythm, of structure, of length, of um, musicality, uh, the humor as well. It's not, of course, it's not a word thing. It's not Mm -hmm. on the level of the word. But yeah, so you try try a number of things and you sort of... um, step in and then step back and then after a while you're there mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah yeah concerning the kind of the, the i guess the fragmenting of personalities um in a way which i think i think we find manifested in different ways in in each of your novels but it struck me that adolescence particularly is a um is a time when the the character the the character i guess of the, of the person is in in full development and therefore perhaps most prone to um, this kind of um, fragmenting, this kind of fragmentary uh, sort of process. Um, I was fascinated what you were saying earlier about sort of having difficulty thinking yourself back into the sort of the first person voice of Adam Gordon. Was it, is there some connection to that, that sort of the thinking yourself back into that sort of, sort of fragmented nature of, of adolescence as well was, was behind some of the challenge? Yeah, I mean, I feel like, I mean, I feel perpetually adolescent in the uh-huh. sense of unformed, but, but, in cohate, but the, but the, I mean, part of this book was, became available to me to write because I, also because I became a father. Mm-hmm. And that weird bonsai effect of having little kids where, like, you're looking down at this little kid and, like, suddenly all this, like, father stuff comes out of your mouth. Like, <laughs> But then you also have this, so you have this sense of like voices coursing through you. And then you, um, but then you, for, I don't know, you, I, I don't know how general this is, but then, but then for me, it also, it's this really intense memories of having been the little kid. So like, uh-huh. li- li- I really have with my daughters, especially my first daughter, when it was all totally new to me, like this scent, this actual sense of like looking up and looking down simultaneously. That's what I mean by the bonsai mm-hmm. effect, that way you feel like you're under the miniaturized tree and also floating mm-hmm. above it. And your kind of sensibility is ricocheting between those two perspectives, which is also another way of saying first and third uh-huh. person simultaneously. Right. Um, I think the part of adolescence that was interesting that the, the, the thing that was fascinating that, that made me feel like it might be writable thematically but made it a challenge compositionally was that I didn't know how to inhabit the voice in a way that wasn't like merely comic mm-hmm. or offensive but I um I was really fascinated by adolescence as a time in which the voice is in such intense formation. Mm-hmm. I mean, not just the body, like, you know, really like the crack. I was just remembering like the cracking of the voice uh-huh. even, you know, as like, a, um, you know, so the way, the way that voices, a, the, I mean, this is so much a novel about him testing out different mm-hmm. regimes of mm-hmm. speech 
you know, um, and, and also learning that he has only limited control over which voices get in him or come through him. Mm-hmm. So that, that is, that is a moment that's typical of adolescence, right? Developmentally, it's, it's like a way of talking about it, but it is also in my experience been typical of parenthood mm-hmm. because again, like you, you, you just find it like like the amount of involuntary citation mm-hmm. you know that takes that takes place when 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 you start addressing the kid and also just the 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 the, the reconnection with the the um the plasticity of language when like i was writing the book and the girls were still young enough to really just be like my younger daughter was really babbling mm-hmm. which is the kind of the, the utopian impulse in the book is this idea that there's like this certain moment when language is pushed uh-huh. to an extreme and you reconnect with it with its plasticity and prosody mm-hmm. that you like make contact with this force that could reshape a social world or whatever and like that that so that's that's also there in the adolescent debate stuff with the kind of weird dada performance of yeah. speed that makes language collapse it's a kind of babble mm-hmm. So I, I, I think that I was around a lot of babble, and I don't just mean the Dada performance of American political speech, uh-huh. but like my, the, my kids stretching their language and also then feeling really out of control, um, not out of control like I was out of control, but, but, but just very aware of how many different discourses were like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, coming out of me that where did they come from exactly? I'd like to explore a little bit this, the, the, the the subject of debating because the, my reading of the Topeka School was the first time I'd come across this as a practice, like this this speed de- the speed debating the yeah. extent all of that. How, just as somebody who grew up in Britain rather than America, is this how niche as a sort of subculture is this in the United States? Like, is it sort of something which, like the spelling bee, would be kind of broadly familiar to? To most people, or is it really sort of uh, something which uh, it's not as broadly familiar as the spelling bee? But there's like there would be like one person in every room who's aware of this bizarre cult, <laughs> cult of activity. Yeah, and then if you're not, you don't you don't believe it, like you uh-huh. don't understand it until you see it. It's really quite. I mean, I don't know how much it's changed. I uh-huh. I, have, I haven't kept up. Yeah, you know, but it it um it but it it seemed to me to be both um, like, uh, like just totally, I mean, I think everything I've read, I'm like kind of interested in like this kind of at, these like these abject and shameful mm-hmm. moments and just like preposterous moments. And then also like, what's the spark of real possibility mm-hmm. kind of released by the moment. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was like, not about what, what, what the moment of possibility and that activity, that bizarre activity was certainly not, although there are all kinds of like smart kids saying smart things about like policy decisions, I'm sure. But like that was not what seemed to yeah. It was actually, I actually kind of was moved retrospectively in part because it started because when I was more interested in experimental poetry, I started mm-hmm. to say, well, actually, like some of the discourse of like stretching and strategic decomposition of linguistic performance, like that's what these kids were doing a little bit. You know, they were like evacuating the language mm-hmm. of its referential content and really returning it to the body in this bizarre spectacle that like freaked everybody out. You know? <laughs> and so uh, it's niche, but it's not, I mean, it's a big, yeah. it's a big, the national tournament, which was the, that I remember going to, you know, was like, there were thousands of people there and some of it was on C-SPAN, but they slowed down when it was like, they slowed down when it's, 
civilians see it. It's also, <laughs> and, 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 um, and the, you know, there was like a whole apparatus that apparently had like its own colorful scandals. Yeah. So it's, it's like a, re- it's like a yeah. real world, but yeah. I don't think, I think, I think it is, the shock of it is precisely that what everyone's reasonable assumption of what interscholactic debate right. might be <laughs> is precisely what it isn't or wasn't. I don't know if it, I don't know if yeah. it's changed. Mm. I doubt it's changed. And, and would you consider it a uniquely American sort of cre- creation? Does it, does it exist in other countries? I don't know. Like it's. I've never been told about, but I wouldn't, maybe people here, here wouldn't know more. That, I mean, I am. Um, I don't think, I don't know. I mean, there's glossolalia in many different (laughs) traditions, although that's also quite American. I mean, there's, there's speaking and, you know, there there are rituals of linguistic decomposition, but I don't know about the, the, I mean. It hasn't become a sport. uh, Yeah, it hasn't become a sport. But also the other thing that was involved in it, and this is like, you know, this was less in this fast debate, although there was some of it and more in the other activities, was a kind of weaponized eloquence that's, that's a kind of, it's a kind of trolling mm-hmm. and that's every that's everywhere and that yeah, is actually, that's in the british debate system you know or whatever yeah. it is that you know that was one of the the difficulties in translating the the novel it wasn't a textual difficulty it was a paratextual mm. extra textual culturally yeah. um, mm. difficult because you have to find a way of showing how um this eloquence these weaponized rhetorics um on the one hand foster a certain type of political discourse that has been contaminating Europe, that hasn't seeped um, in all the way through. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it's a, it's, it's an alien practice for us. Yeah. You, know, you have to set the tone in a way that we, or the reader, the French reader understands that it's mildly normal mm-hmm. to go on weekends and indulge in these yeah. things. Um, it was mildly normal, isn't <laughs> it? Good, and you have, to, it. you have to strike the right chord for yeah, mildly yeah. normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not to be expected, but you know, when it happens, no one's calling the cops. Yeah, you know, that's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, or the or the mental institution. Because yeah. I think I what it was um I mean the book again, like the book kind of became imaginable for me when I saw this like constellation of theaters of extreme speech, mm-hmm. like language breaking down under trauma or the 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 um jonathan's dissertation with the speech shadowing or um in a slightly different way but but really in a relevant way the 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 white kids freestyling like the moment where the kind of ridiculousness of the practice in that context nevertheless passes into an experience of flow or whatever but yeah this 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 um it was really lucky and really unlucky for me for this character that there happened to be in this culture that largely was anti-talk mm-hmm. outside of my a household or whatever that there actually was like a violent series of social contests that mm-hmm. depended on linguistic prowess <laughs> i'm not saying i was like great at that it was bad for me but i was a lot better at that mm-hmm. than the alternatives yeah. you know like in terms of in terms of trying to kind of figure out, I mean, I was totally disfigured by it, but it just did actually seem like a kind of, I was surprised to rem, to look back and realize how central these linguistic contests mm-hmm. were, or linguistic events, not always contests of different sorts, to, to my experience, to the experience of 
my peers, but also like, you know, my parents because they were therapists and they were, yeah. I was going to ask you, Jokita, concerning um, rendering this kind of concept, I guess, into into French, because I, I think as a sort of a, a British person in France, it's like France is a culture which sort of embraces and celebrates a certain type of debate. Um, and it's sort of, it seems quite natural to the, uh, the way sort of, not just in sort of a formal setting, but the way sort of friends in France <clears throat> will engage with each other. And yet I can only imagine that this, this, this concept, this context of the, the competitive debating in this way must have yeah, seemed quite alien to, uh, to you and also the, Yes, it is. And the, and the difficulty as well is that the, you're quite right in saying that we have a own history with eloquence and uh, practice of eloquence. But then it conjures different ideas. Mm -hmm. And you have to be extra careful not to conjure those ideas right, um, yeah, in yeah. a context, in the context that's a different one mm -hmm. and in which they don't fit. Because if you imagine um, teenagers um, dressed up in suits and, and with ties and taking themselves extremely seriously, mm -hmm. um, you're not pointing to the to the friendly BMU debate. Right, you know, yeah. that's, uh, that's, that's been mythologized. Mm -hmm. um, in France as well. So you, luckily when you're translating from American English, you can always rely on a fundamental element of pop culture that right. has been, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> that we've been exposed to so much mm -hmm. that everyone sort of can find a notion, like a sitcom scene um, <laughs> or a TV series drama and say, oh yeah, 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 I, I remember something mm -hmm. akin to this. Um, and then you sort of want to tap into that. Right. But not too much. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, you used the word trolling earlier, um, and one of the things that is very evident while reading the Topeka School is the sort of the, and as I mentioned in the introduction, the kind of the the resonances, I suppose, with certain behaviors, certain rhythms, certain manners of interaction um, from from it's sort of a, I guess about well, a technologically simpler time, perhaps a technologically more naive time. Was it? Was that one of the sort of the advantages for you, or one of the, the pleasures of writing about the 1990s that you sort of you were able to talk about, for example, the activity of trolling online without specifically talking yeah. about the activity of trolling online? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I because I think about I, I mean, I think one of the things that most interests me about writing novels is the idea that they're a kind of media history. Mm -hmm. Or in this instance, a kind of media prehistory, like the stuff about landlines, which yeah. preceded yeah. that passage I wrote, which is important. And also just because, like, what the not the way that I am able to write a novel is ne necessarily ends up being. I mean, I think every novel necessarily ends up being media history to a certain extent because you have to like figure out how to move people around. <laughs> you know, like like the so. You know, in in leaving the Atocha station, I, payphones were really important to uh -huh. me in that book. I and mean, there are a few crucial scenes that have to do with the mixture of distance and intimacy of this mm -hmm. already then anachronistic technology. Yeah. You know, um, and you know, ten oh four, various things, including just the, the kind of collective memories that circulated <laughs> in part because of an earlier moment of television or whatever, but also trying to describe what it does to your kind of psychogeography to remember having got these messages mm -hmm. on your phone at particular points in the city or, or, or whatever. And then like, you know, like, and part of the reason why I could, I thought like I'd never be able to write the Topeka novel that I wanted to write is because I, I because everybody drove. Mm -hmm. 
and all the fiction I'd written depended upon walking. That was like the prosody was walking. So I was like, well, I, I, like one of the reasons I would give up the novel is because people would have to drive. But then there was, a, there was a, I put in a long walk kind of based on John Clare's walk eventually, you know, but, 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 or, but I say, okay, like the landline, you know, the, the, the landline. So, but, but yes, I mean, I think like with the spread, with the debate thing, which is, I mean, it's, a, it's transposed, but I, I, part of, um, you know, I mean, it talks about this as the kind of like the Twitter storm or the, the, you know, nano trading or whatever it was like a kind of, or, you know, what was already at that time in print, like, you know, you open a bill from an insurance company and there's this cascade of language that's not designed to be read. It's not designed to disclose information. It's designed to make reading impossible or whatever it did. It did want to be related. And just that idea of the spread and the debate stuff about um, making more arguments than someone can possibly respond mm -hmm. to did, did seem to me in a way to offer a kind of metaphor for what I think was one of the fundamental tactical innovations of recent presidential politics, which was the recognition that one scandal mm -hmm. was dangerous. But if you have like a thousand scandals a day, it's totally incapacitating. And that, it, and the, that, that requires a media ecology to be able to, out, to, to outrage to, to that point too, right? So the, the spread did seem to me, even though it was this linguistic practice in high school debate, did seem to me to be um, a, a, a prehistory of a kind of, yeah, of a kind of ecology of public speech that involved the internet or whatever, yeah. yeah. And just to unpack that, that concept of prehistory, so, um, because I, I think, and I, I don't think I really settled on one interpretation or another, but I think while reading the novel, I sort of vacillated between seeing it almost as a sort of a cause and effect, like what we're reading here is the kind of the seeds of the culture that would produce Twitter and would produce this kind of debate. Or my other reaction to it, and maybe these two aren't contradictory necessarily, is that just sort of, it, it's something more sort of deeply rooted in the way humans re react with each other, or interact with each other, and, and therefore you know, the, it's the particular context of debate or of social media that, that allows it to, to escape. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's all. And I also think it's just very much about um, intergenerational repeti repetition across like a variety of scales, mm -hmm. including like the familial one and one of the technologies where that shows up in the book which is of course like at the center of all the novels is the is poetry is the mm -hmm. the little ritual theater of misquotation that happens with the mother and adam about that purple cow mm -hmm. poem when it's like i'm going to transmit this thing intergenerationally but the ritual of getting it wrong also holds out this possibility of intergenerational modification mm -hmm. you know so that there's something that isn't pure repetition but there is still it's not pure repression either. Yeah. Um, but I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I mean, I, <laughs> but that, that, I mean, I think that that was like, that is, that, that was the other tech. And you know, there's that scene late in the book, I guess. Um, I mean, I've largely repressed this book, but there's a, the, when it's a, I mean, it's dense in a diff different ways, but in just in terms of technology of him kind of writing a poem in a kind of collage manner that maybe is connected to the way he's going to be composing poems and leaving the mm -hmm. attention station and he's kind of doing it on his mom's personal computer uh -huh. 
kind of overwriting or, or collaging material that's like on the screen and then it also becomes a site for pornography you know mm -hmm. there's many different things being crossed and also just the kind of slow bit speed that earlier moment even of like when your computer made what sounded like little construction noises uh -huh. as it like slowly loaded the image of whatever <laughs> so i so i just mean i think that there's a crossing between like computer media history and poetry media history and the history of poetry in the book and its relation to family drama etc uh -huh. so yeah i think it does i think it all you know touches and this is a slightly tangential point but um I was thinking when when rereading the book that sort of because I, I I found I have a tendency to sort of project contemporary technology back into my childhood and my adolescence and sort of almost forget that people didn't have mobile phones for example when um, when, I, when I was in my adolescence at all really um, was it was it important to you to sort of to get the technology right in a way or because there was this sense of sort of looking back sort of prehistory was there a kind of did you, would you allow yourself, I guess, a certain sort of inaccuracy or sort of allow yourself not to, to research it? I mean, this is pretty low tech novel. And I, you know, like, I mean, it's hard if you're like writing about this 17th century to get all the like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> to get the males right or whatever. Um, I mean, there, the, the anachronisms in the novel sometimes show up. The, the anachronisms that I allowed myself and that were like thematic were like that were important to me mm. were also around media, but of a different sort. They were like putting the Duccio painting in the Met when it wasn't there. Mm. Um, and yeah, referring to parts of the museum that had been arranged differently, you know, and they're like a few, t I mean, there are a few like Topeka things that like in the landscape of Topeka mm. that I kind of changed and let myself change. But the, the the Duccio was the signature for me of anachronism also is just like a sign of fictional reframing and that painting recurs because of the history of the framing of that painting in part um so i'm sure i got other things wrong although the book is pretty like i, I think it's it's not very ambitious in trying sure. to depict like a very distinct material uh -huh. culture in which you could make a lot of you know, it was kind of like great into peace. Like I could have called the Olive Garden the Chili's accidentally, but it's like pretty, it's pretty like homogenous landscape in terms of its of its setting. But I, but but I do like mistakes to or anachronisms or or errors or to be resonant and mm -hmm. some poet to be signatures of something. You know, so yeah. like the Duccio anachronism was a significant signature yeah. for me. Yeah. We talked about um, the the debating, and obviously you've mentioned the the rap battles as well. Which, uh, which but I, I'll tell you that yeah. what, what we were talking about cell phones. I often have occasion to be very grateful that there were not cell phones <laughs> when I was. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and the um, and of course you mentioned poetry, which of course is uh, both both a written and a spoken form. But there's uh, the way the poetry is written about in the book, sort of he talks about poems being spells or, make, or where they shape sounds of unmaking and remaking sense. Um, in, in as much as the, the Topeka's always, because one of its concerns is the, the power of language, would you say the specifically spoken language over written language? And I wonder also, does that sort of, um, how that again connects to the way that we express ourselves, for example, on social media, which seems to be 
in some way almost a kind of written spoken language. Yeah, I mean, I have a total magical relationship to the incantatory power of language, mm -hmm. like in a way that's somewhat poetic, but also just largely neurotic. And a lot of my <laughs> writing recently has been about this, like, and, and a kind of fictionalized version of the different relation to speaking worry in my household. Mm -hmm. But bet between my wife and I, I mean, she also has a totally magical relationship to language, but her magical relationship to language is if you express the fear, it'll come true. And my magical relationship to language is it's prophylactic to express the fear. So I constantly am expressing the fear <laughs> to protect us. And she's constantly trying to stop me to protect us. I mean, I, I also, you know, I had to be just on the personal level. Like I wrote, you know, when I wrote Leaving the Touch of Station, I was writing the book and I um and my mom got diagnosed with breast cancer when I was writing these, which up until that point seemed only comic scenes about these like lies about the mother's health. And then I was like, oh, I've given my mom mm -hmm. cancer. I have to abandon the book. And, and because of the way my wife, I mean, this is a little bit of an exaggeration, but I went to her and I was like, I think I gave my mom cancer by writing this book and like I wanted her to say like don't be ridiculous and she was like yes you must destroy the book <laughs> you must destroy the book right away um my mom kind of talked you know she thought it was funny and kind of talked me out of, uh, of that but that's a so uh, but so I, I don't know if I have like an interesting intellectual answer about the difference between speech and writing in that regard but speech actually they both feel dangerous to me, mm -hmm. but I'm trying to wonder which. Maybe, maybe, maybe speech sounds more dangerous to me because, if, because fiction under the sign of fiction, you can claim. Even though I do worry about inhabiting or creating the circumstances I describe, like I don't have an equivalent. App, like I don't have spoken fiction. Mm -hmm. So I fear that if I speak something like I don't have a way of speaking it as if like as if I'm saying this, whereas so much of the writing I do is as, is as if, mm -hmm. you know, like even Creeley has that book as if I were writing this. Um, so I think maybe I'm slightly less afraid mm -hmm. of the magical power of writing than the magical power of speech. But now that I say that out loud, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know if that's true, but but that's but that's a that's a great like that's a that's a really abiding. It's not an original theme, but it's like a deeply abiding theme for me, and I think mm -hmm. kind of unites poetry and fiction for me in the sense that I mean, even if you think poems make nothing happen or whatever, like they they whatever your your disposition about the real effects of poems, I don't know a poet who doesn't on some level have a sense of the kind of metaphysical capacity of language to affect the world. Like even if they're embarrassed by it, it's just very hard to sustain a relationship to the art mm -hmm. for any kind of writer. I feel like if you don't, so if you don't feel like it's a little bit mm -hmm. dangerous, yeah. the problem it was, but then see what happened is leaving the attention station got all this attention that I didn't expect. And then that made everything worse because it's one thing to write a book, that nobody, if you're sure, like nobody's going to read it. And then, and then, then you start to have to kind of inhabit the character you create, uh -huh. you know, also like your in-laws will read your fiction. <laughs> they don't look at the, you know, the poetry. You can hide anything in a poem. <laughs> I find. 
Yakuta, when you're um, when you're translating that, there's a lot of um, a lot of the, um, the, the the prose in the Topeka school is very, I suppose, verbal. We might say, and I've I found in the past there's a, a certain sort of resistance in written French to um, to sort of a representation of sort of verbal form in prose. Obviously, not in sort of when speech is very sort of explicitly mm -hmm. being represented. But did you find yourself sort of pushing up against certain sort of conventions or expectations um, of what French prose should be when, uh, when translating yeah. that work? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point, because on the one hand, um, <clears throat> I believe that the translation should not sound translated, mm -hmm. that you ideally have, can read it as though it had been written in the, in the language you're reading it. But then it's so specifically on French that you have uh -huh. to find ways to accommodate that. Um, it's syntax, mostly. Mm -hmm. And I do tend to betray the Frenchness of syntax uh, to accommodate Ben's genius. <laughs> um, no, um, the other trick is very French. It comes from Flaubert and you have to read out loud and it works whatever type of text you're, you're working on, but it works as well with translations. You read out loud to see if the prosody, the musicality, the rhythm, um, if it's there. Mm -hmm. If you find it very hard to read it out loud for yourself, you know, you have to go back and, and make arrangements. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can you think of any sort of specific moment, maybe it's too long ago now, but where the, the sort of, it felt almost sort of intractable? Um, I, had a, I had a surprisingly hard time with the purple cow, ah, yeah, um, because it looks so simple and, you know, so innocuous, and it's mm. not, because you have to... Um, unpack without unpacking because yeah. it's, you're not glossing the book you're translating it um so yeah i had a mm. it's always the simplest things really sure. it's you know you think okay this is you understand it intuitively and you find no resistance mm -hmm. and then when you have to set it into words it's something else yeah, yeah. yeah. and in the same section um then you quote uh, the beginning of uh, the portrait a portrait of the artist as a young man um that mm -hmm. extract there, did you did you go to a sort of uh, an existing translation? Or yeah, you... courtesy requires me to go okay. to the ex ex existing translation. Sometimes it's um, sometimes sometimes it's an issue because sometimes the existing translation doesn't work right. in the way it should work um, within the text. Uh, and then there was the in French there was the Ziegelgate, the Hermann mm -hmm. Hesse, um, because. Uh, ben quotes from a Hermann Hesse short story that, in fact, has never been translated into French. Mm. So, um, mm. and I'm not a translator from German. So, you know, we found found a way. Uh -huh. <laughs> but let me not get too specific. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was a that made my heart race a bit. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I guess on the subject of heart racing. Um, you, we talked about the different kind of forms of, um, of verbal expression um, that Adam Gordon sort of uh, masters or sort of experiments with in, um, in the Topeka School. So there's the, the debating and there's poetry, both of which um, at the point he is in his life of being kind of a, you know, a high school student. In some way, I think he just, I can't remember the exact word he used, but kind of both make him seem a little bit soft in some way. And so he turns to, um, to rap battles. And 
I found that a really interesting sort of example of the sort of the the appropriation, I guess, of sort of talk and ritual as a in the way it connects to sort of portrayals of masculinity, um, particularly as sort of I guess at that moment of of coming of age, of kind of deciding um, what sort of what sort of man you're going to uh, you're going to become. I recognise that's not a question, but <laughs> perhaps you could could you reflect a little bit on that sort of the um, I, I suppose the the importance of the that activity of rap battles to this sort of this this question of masculinity as it then comes up uh, in the book. Well, one thing is just like the weird symmetry with the debate. I mean, like literally, like kind of going from like in the book, like the way he moves from like the contest of words that is the debate tournament to the contest of words that's the kind of freestyle mm -hmm. battle and just the just yeah like I was saying just this the kind of like good luck or bad luck it's hard to say of there being like these different kinds of linguistic combat mm -hmm. that were like dominating the social world to a certain way but 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 the I mean, it's hard not, it's hard, I don't know how to say, I don't know what I have to say that's kind of interesting about the kind of like white kid appropriation of hip hop at that moment. I mean, one thing is that just that it was, it was like, you know, they call it freestyle, but it's like a radically formal activity mm -hmm. that does have um, formal constraints and social practices. And so it, it was much more, it, it was much more alive as poetry than what, Pat, you know what often pass for poetry but I think I think that the what I wanted to do is like again like totally reveal the utter absurdity uh well the, I mean there's this well-known circuitry of kind of like white suburban kids adopting their manners of dress and addressed from spectacularized images of of, of black people that are largely like funded for their mm -hmm. you know consumption and and then also appropriating in places like Topeka things like the drive-by shooting, mm -hmm. like that the, the, the forms of violence too were totally borrowed. That said, like, and that all the, that even the language of keeping it real mm -hmm. was so abjectly appropriated, it just seemed like an extreme moment of an ancient American cycle mm -hmm. of, of appropriation. But, but, but it's easy to just um, denounce it. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted to do is also honor, like with the debate thing, like the experience of flow, like the uh -huh. like the like that in, that in you know like the book the book would have only been depressing, or ironic if there wasn't also some release of real energy in the busted forms of extreme speech that uh -huh. are in the book. So, you know, like at, at one point, I, so yeah, and, and I just think like experientially for me that that moment, that threshold that I don't really have a language for um, where you're no longer having to make conscious decisions mm -hmm. about the speech you're composing in real time, but you feel like the language is coursing through you, which can be horrifying in certain moments, like that dad thing I was talking about. Mm -hmm. In other moments just really is, I mean, there are all kinds of, poetic metaphors for what mm -hmm. that is from inspiration or taking dictation or like, you know, whatever, whatever, like that, that is a crucial poetic experience for me. And also an experience of social possibility because mm -hmm. you're, you're getting back in touch with the, with just this bizarre thing that we have, like, you know, we produce these columns of vibrating mm -hmm. air 
and shape them with our mouth parts and it becomes a social world. I mean, it's kind of amazing, you know? So, and, and that, and that, and that, and that those things are both powerful and also um, fragile and can be reshaped mm-hmm. or whatever. So there, I, there, there were moments of that too in the masculine appropriative posturing of yeah. the, of the freestyle. It's interesting. A couple of terms of phrase you used, there while talking about that, I think specifically that idea of kind of coursing through you, I think could also equally be applied to the experience of rage, yeah. in a sense. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you could reflect on, on that connection. Yeah, I think well, they're two... their experience is a depersonalization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they, they, yeah, they have, they're sublime and they're, they're, it's, it's terror and it's possibility, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And I mean, like the most recent fiction I wrote was a story in which very much these kind of like poetic, the kind of poetic values of like the elasticity of pronouns and address and being able to see pattern was very difficult for the narrator to sort from psychosis. Mm -hmm. And that there were moments in which it opened up into a kind of compassion or experience of transpersonality and at other moments was leading to to a kind of violence and and incommunicability. So I think I don't have a lot of range, (laughs) but I think, I think that, yeah, like that, that moment of, you know, or or when I got really obsessed with the other thing that I wrote recently that was fiction, I got really obsessed with choking and the way that only humans choke, then it has to do with the evolutionary speech speech advantage because as the larynx, you know, got lower so we could summon this column of vibrating air and make a social world that also meant that, you know, our passages for swallowing and breathing crossed and i got really interested in how you could have this like brute this you know choke nothing nothing there's nothing like choking to remind you of your Mm -hmm. brute animal materiality but it's also possible precisely because of this other capacity to produce speech so this is my like i'm still in this this space (laughs) of obsession there was um there was a line and i think it was in the guardian uh review of the topeka school um, which I, I noted down at the time, and I came back to here, and it's it describes the book as uh, your most successful effort at navigating between communal experience brackets the shared tropes, ideologies, and cliches of a culture, and individual feeling, the specificities and textures of poetic expression. Um, and there's been a few times during this conversation where you have talked um, about the sort of I guess sort of representing the political reality of America in the, the sort of the personal experiences of Adam and the and the other characters. Um, in the book. Um, I wonder what is is that a fine line to tread for you as a novelist to sort of to not sort of want to make your characters ciphers for a uh, a political experience or a, yeah. sort of a social context while also being use, using them or uh, being able to say something about this contemporary society with them. Yeah, and I don't think I did it right or what. I mean, I think that the, I think for me, the part that's kind of the most fascinating part of that drove the book was just really this idea of, which is a kind of obvious idea. And it's just the question about like the, the execution or the failure of execution. It's just like the voice is a corporate technology and all kinds of people participate in your voice, even in your most individual moments of articulation, mm-hmm. you know, like the grandfather you don't want. And and the 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 debate coach you're trying to unlearn, and also you know the music you've listened to is just whatever. And that again is you know I mean that's a 
I feel like that's a an obvious thing to say, but I actually think like it's in my reading experience that seems much more present <coughs> among the poetry I grew up with. You know, like Bakhtin is all about like the heteroglossy of the novel, but actually a lot of the novels I was trying to read, at least at first, American novels seemed incredibly like they're univocal. There was one voice and and and, and poems kind of top where the space where I kind of encountered this idea that the voice is an echo chamber or a tissue of contradictory voices or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that part, I mean, I just think that even in the most personal moments that what you hear is that, and also in that effort that I described of like Adam to imagine the voices of his parents mm -hmm. is to imagine speaking and, or, you know, speaking the prehistory of his voice. I think that the more explicitly political stuff in the book, I think for me, I mean, or like more about like the present, like late in the book. One thing that I think for me maybe makes that a little bit different is that that felt like a very essayistic, I, I am for better or for worse, very comfortable, just have been historically very comfortable going into a, a, a mode of describing like an experience in the present and trying to juxtapose it with other aspects of the novel. And I think if you read it as like framed by the art and if you read it as having the pressure of a kind of exemplarity, mm -hmm. like this will now stand for the way one is a good father or mm -hmm. this will now stand for whatever, then it seems tendentious and kind of ridiculous. And from, from me writing it, which is not to say that that this works or whatever it's much more like swimming back into the present and mm -hmm. kind of thinking and like wanting to kind of think in real time about these scenes that for me are yeah more like lived and essayistic and less mm -hmm. less exemplary like the spread does want to be specific and also exemplary in a different way and and i think I, some of the other stuff is more kind of I don't know if essayistic is the right word. I just mean like I try to move in and out of the pressures of a certain generic exemplarity mm -hmm. within a certain work. And I, I, it doesn't always work, mm -hmm. but it's like essential to me trying to get it written. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what I'm trying to say not very well is that, that that fine line that you're talking about, I think, I think what I'm still trying to figure out is precisely the, yeah, is is how you can have passages of a work of, how you can modulate the pressure of exemplarity. Mm -hmm. And you can have different passages in the same work of art that might not make the same, um, that might be, that some might be more or less generalizable than others. I don't really have a vocabulary for it, but it's, it's something that in order to feel like a book is writable, I have to feel like I have some agility with mm -hmm. that. And I, and I, you know, like I mess it, I mess it up, you know, I don't, I mean, I'm not saying like, this, this is how I write these triumphant <laughs> books, I'm saying like, this is what I try to do and it doesn't yeah, work for yeah, everybody yeah. or for me a lot of the time. Mm. And you keep to win this, the sort of the subject of sort of translating a book that is so concerned with, in, in many ways, kind of masculinity and male rage and sort of male feeling, which um in not always in a particularly overt way mm -hmm. um i'm just trying to project from some the translation work that i've done in the past like if i was and it's, i'm not sure you could have a, a sort of a parallel book written by a woman but i can imagine it would be quite hard at times to sort of project myself into some of the specificities of the experience and then render it into uh sort of a um an English that, that did justice to, to mm -hmm. that experience. I just wonder if that's the that's the part I like most, uh -huh. perhaps. Yeah, um, 
speaks to the foundations of literature, mm. I think, this um, perpetual, you know, it's for Ben, it's the interplay between um, I and he, and the first mm. and the third person, but that's the interplay you experience as a reader as well, um, constantly, he or she or they and I, and mm. um, how you can um, live or experience or even embody some of their experiences verbally mm -hmm. but it becomes physical in a way so yeah it's the um, it's difficult of course but it's it's truly the challenge i love most mm -hmm. so it, and i'm just it's just a little bit curious if there was um because i did wonder when i was sort of going to do the thought experiment about how i would react in a similar way mm -hmm. because i guess in france as much as in the states and elsewhere we live in a society so shaped by I guess, sort of masculinity and, and, and male rage and perhaps male fragility. Perhaps it's sort of, it's something that as a, as a woman translating, you could kind of, you could tap into perhaps easier than a... Than perhaps, a I don't know, as, as, as all, most women I have a personal <laughs> knowledge of male toxicity, so, you know, this <laughs> was quite relatable. You didn't have to do any, yeah. any research. No, although I did consider, I did consider... Um, having the the French publisher um, fly me over to Topeka, but then <laughs> since most of the book is set in the nineties, I couldn't very well ask them to, um, you know, yeah. roll me back into nineties Topeka. So I let go of the notion altogether. But I wanted to go. Yeah. Um, I think we're probably quite close to the end of yeah. the conversation. I can't remember what time we started, but um, do we open I, it? Up yeah. That or was, we, yeah going to be my thought. Would anybody have a question you'd like to ask Ben or Yakuta or Ben and Yakuta? Thank you. Yeah, we have a question here at the back. Um, yeah, hi. I, I do have a question actually for both of you. Um, and it concerns the word, uh, the spread and its grammatical properties in different languages mm. and in translation. Um, so because so I'm a German native speaker, and when I read the book first, I, I read it as the spread. I pronounced it spreading rather than spreading. Um, and then, so for me, it had this it, this, this notion of making something flat, like we, you know, you spread butter on a piece of bread, and sort of as an agent, you're doing something to your uh, like opponent, right? And that makes sense in the context. Yeah, it is that. It is. Spread. It is yeah, that, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But then I read the German translation. Or some parts of it, which yeah. is brilliant by Nicholas Stingle, right? Um, and he translated it Schnellzug, which like the verbal form, and it means to read fast. Mm. And then first I thought, oh no, that's like it doesn't work at all. What's he doing? Um, and then when um, Wikipedia told me that uh, spreading comes from speed reading, and then I thought, oh well, maybe I got it wrong all, all along, right? And it's actually should be pronounced spreading. <laughs> but then everybody, <laughs> maybe I got it wrong. <laughs> Change it to that, you have this human object that 
some yeah. things being done to. Um, and then mm -hmm. I, I don't know the French translation. Yeah, what did you do I was in French? Ask how you yeah, it was, a, it was a hard one. I, was, I looked for something that could work in, um, in, in, in different contexts, but I had the notion of covering ground, of taking up space, mm -hmm. of also um, doing something possibly unpleasant to someone, um, um, and all these things. And so in the end, can't remember what I chose. <laughs> <laughs> there were two contenders, and one was um, one was less. One was m derived from the military, and the other was not. And I think I chose the one that was not because then um, the spreading and spreading out um, sort of contaminates other parts, other sections of the of the book of the and the. Um, and the way some characters talk to each other or act with each other. And so I, I think I went with the, the more gener generic one. I can't remember. I feel like I knew at one point at least an account of, 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 an account of the origin of the word, but I'm not actually. I mean, you know, we also have like to be spread thin. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't remember, so it, it might also have to do not with like spreadsheets as they exist now, but in these, in the fast debate thing, there's this whole notational practice where you're flowing the round and being spread, I think also had something to do with like, it's, you're spreading your arguments all over the sheet mm -hmm. in a way that they can't be responded to, but it, it is the kind of thing. Uh, and and uh, the man spreading the ticket that yes. was also on my on my mind, but I don't actually know where that. You, you would think that in one of the many anxious evenings I spent, <laughs> trying, that I would that I would have got that straight. Yeah. But I but I, I don't I don't really remember who who thought I of it. I've Do just you know remembered. I, I don't know yeah. where I don't know exactly, but I think of it exactly as spreading out the opponent. And the whole point is that you give them a whole bunch of things that you haven't committed to, but if they mess up, then you have mm -hmm. them. Yeah. And so you're just lobbing a whole bunch of stuff out that you don't even have to care about unless they drop it. Yeah. And mm -hmm. then they're had. Yeah. And it's just a technique, like it's a technical trick. It's a legal, you know, technicality. And you bust them, it doesn't even matter how substantial. That's what I love so much about reading your account of this, which is the, I, I felt like I recognized, I mean, I was one of those like mediocre creators, right? Like I had friends who could kill it, right? Yeah. And, and reading your account, which is like, oh, like finally someone des describing this culture that I felt completely disconnected from since I graduated high school. But that's exactly it. Like it's this weird domination that is utterly non-committal. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. you give nothing, but if they miss it, then they're mm -hmm. toast. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. utterly manipulative. And, <laughs> yeah. and I have it. I remember it's étalé. I chose étalé because s'étaler, um, quelqu'un qui s'étale, someone takes space. Um, étalé quelqu'un means to spread someone out, to put someone on the ground, to just, you know, finish them off. Um, so I went with étalé. Yeah. Just like making the last sort of to, to close off, but I am. In, I mean, it's intriguing that the speed is also important. Mm -hmm. right? There's yeah, the yeah, whole yeah. grill. It's yeah. about the speed, so it's also in there. It's not just the the, the breadth of it, or you know, the sort of spreading out in space, but also in time of uh, this acceleration. So yeah, maybe even if it, yeah, it's interesting that it's like in the English word 
maybe if it wasn't, yeah. Yeah, it so is. It's consciously speed. all the time, but yeah. Well, fascination with speed, and yeah, maybe it comes from there, but maybe uh, Wikipedia got it wrong as well. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, or maybe I wrote the Wikipedia entry. And <laughs> but there's also like, a, um, there was, I mean, in the book, it talks about this a little bit. I was really fascinated by this like bifurcation where because people, because people would go see the fast debate and then be scandalized or like the people who donated to the activity, they would, they then wanted to sponsor a slow debate. So there were, but the, and so the way the bifurcation was like policy debate will remain fast and value debate will be slow. And now I hear that's gotten fast too. And that comes up a little bit in the book, but, but I thought that this idea that like there, there's like a, like policy decisions take place at an unintelligible speed and this kind of performative rhetoric about value takes place with like a kind of painful deliberateness was actually very, it was roughly analogous to what happens on the, like in the US, right? Where you have like deregulation of financial markets and lightning fast trades, and then there's a crash and then it's like, but so no, we just have these like, this priestly class of people who can speak the jargon of derivatives. And so you just have to leave it on their hands. Like policy is totally, like has a specialized language which blocks the language of value. And then you have you know, I mean, like Obama, who is a skilled orator, was like famous for speaking so slowly, like in his speeches, that there were right wing conspiracies about him hypnotizing crowds. <laughs> but the, but the, the, it's actually among the conspiracy theories, some of the writing on that is quite fascinating if you're looking for something to Google. But the, <laughs> but the, but, but, but that the, like, that already, and, oh, and also the, the slow debate, the value debate was sponsored by, um, by, uh, by a big multinational petroleum, Phillips Petroleum, is that the petroleum one, or is that just the cigarettes one, or is it both? I don't know, but, but, but this was also, yeah, so it was like, it was a giant multinational oil company separating policy and value. And then at first, the value debates would be really interestingly, slow because the kids knew that they were in this new thing that was divine like supposed to be slow so it had this it was like a different kind of um deranged speech <laughs> like lo long enough gaps between the words that you couldn't you lost all sense of like the syntax unfolding and these slow elaborate gestures um yeah yeah um my literature takes place in time as well, right? And I'm, I'm sort of wondering, is, is poetry uh, like slower than fiction? And then I was also, I, I don't know what you think about that. And, and is one better, you know, like is the value debate slower, that sort of thing. And I was also thinking, Adam Gordon, it seems to me, he thinks really fast. Um, and that like something about the texture of his thoughts uh, has a kind of speed to it that is at once like fascinating and uh, like maybe a, a kind of spread or something. Yeah, and he incapacitates himself a lot with it. But that's a good um, question about the relative speeds of the genres. I mean, the thing that comes into my mind when you say, like, is one better than the other is that cliche about, um, uh, what is it? You govern, no, you campaign in poetry and you govern in prose. But actually, now, like, you campaign in Dada poetry. <laughs> 
and then I don't know what you govern in exactly, but it's but it, it, I, I don't know if it's prose or not. You know, like I found myself in as like a, as someone who kind of as a poet who was very influenced by like la the language poets and by different avant-garde discourses about how disjunction and non sequitur and fragmentation and was all, was a, you know had a left political valence that was a way of interrupting the smooth functioning of the prose of empire or whatever. Like one of the things I was thinking through in this book was actually how like that like like um, the mini problem. I mean, there were lots of insights, but like among the mini problems with those vanguard pieties was the assumption that like the empire runs on prose, you know that it runs, that there is this like smooth functioning regime of signs and like rhetorics that pacify, that, like it, it actually seems that, that we, I mean, I don't know who the we is, that I, like when I see what passes for mainstream political speech, it's like a series of agrammatical gestures um, that, that has more in common with the history of avant-garde poetry and performance than it does with um, the kind of conventional prose that, you know, that was supposed to be like the, you know, the reasonable propositional, like whatever. So um, I don't have a sense of one. I mean, I think that the way that, uh, I mean, my, I, I think there's a different relation to like tense and felt silence in poetry and prose for me. I don't exactly know how it relates to one being fast or slower, although I've always been I mean, I basically had like in like year 20 of conversation with friends about like, is a short poetic line faster or slower than a long poetic line? Like those questions are actually like deeply mysterious and hard to generalize or what, what, what produces the sense of a line as fast versus a line as, as slow. I don't have answers to those questions, but I still kind of live them out. I mean, but there's a different kind of depicted time in, in prose, but I often like I'm trying to bring the time of writing into the present tense of composition at certain moments in prose, like the present moment of writing surfaces as an event in the book. That's the only way that's the, for me, that's the like climax more than just kind of like events that are happening on the plane of plot. And that to me is a return to an immediacy of compositional time that I associate with poetry. Thank you so much. Um, I also have a question for both of you. In, in the work of translation. And what I think is really curious about the novel span is that it's not just that they are objects that are subjected to processes of translation later on, right? But it's, it's also that translation is a big problem in, and a concern in many of the novels, right? So I'm thinking of leaving the Edo translation, where, which is all about miscommunication and failures of understanding and, and things like that. So I, I wanted to ask you, Yakuta, to what extent you're, you're aware of this as you're doing your own work and whether it makes you reflect your own work as a translator during your process. And to Ben, my question would be what audience you're having in mind when you're writing your novels. I mean, if you're considering an English language audience or whether you're aware that in a sense the like, difficulties of translation are becoming multiplied by your novels becoming translated. <laughs> I think she should go first. <laughs> well, the le I mean, leaving the Tocha Station was the strangest example of translation, right? Because the book depends on his 
accounts of his Spanish as bad. So when they translated into Spanish, and it was suddenly the <laughs> narrator was writing this like quite literary, you know, good or bad, but quite literary, you know, was fluent. So the that book for the like Spanish friends that I know who read that book, it was just a totally different. Well, I don't know if it's totally different. It's because there's an element of this in the English version, but it's it's totally different in the sense that the book is about someone achieving Spanish fluency, ultimately, and being able to write this book about a prior moment where their Spanish was indeterminate and that produced all these strange experiences or whatever. Because <laughs> there is no, you know, um, and that's just a that's a very different book. I mean, the only similarity is that there's a parallel in that. I think in that book, it's like. Because he also, like, in addition to saying he's, his Spanish is shitty, he also says he's like, doesn't take writing seriously. And so if you think the book is well written in English, it also ironizes the central claim of the narrator. But, but in, in, in Spanish, that's like an intense ironization of the claim <laughs> to not be able to speak any Spanish. So it's a really different book. And I, I, um, I, I don't know the Spanish translator who translated that book, but I was like really interested that sometimes translators don't want to have any with prose and poetry. I tend to know the translator for like a long time, but, and I have some translators that I've become good friends with, but the Spanish translator was just like, don't worry about it. <laughs> cause I think that he thought I was going to try to get involved, but I wasn't cause my Spanish isn't very good. So, but, um, I don't, I don't think I, um, I'm trying to think about like actually being aware of, I mean, I think that there's a kind of, I, I think the books are all very, for me, I'm, I do imagine, I mean, insofar as like I'm imagining a particular reader, like I'm interested in a lot of like transpositions that happen, like lines recurring across books and other contexts or things that happen in the poems or the criticism I've written showing up in a different context, like in a kind of, like I, I have with fiction, like um, a kind of like Duchampian interest in like what happens when you took this thing that was like had a life as nonfiction and you inserted into the fictional world, you know, like it's a poem or an essay or whatever. And like what's, you know, it, but but only is metaphorically as translation. I'm always kind of amazed by, I mean, I'm sensible of the deep honor and of having Yakuta as a translator and the specificity of her insights. Sometimes I'm just like really curious about what kind of a book it is in another language. And like, I just asked a Hungarian friend recently and he was just like, you don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> so no, I don't, I, don't, I don't write with an imagination of having a life in other languages, but I, I do imagine the books as always um, concerned with themes that I hear translators speak about, like both in terms of the li limits of representation, but also the way that language returns with the difference across contexts and, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something will um, inevitably, I guess, bleed out from the translation. You, you lose something, but it's a cliche to say that because, you know, any attempt at communication, um, makes you incur the risk of the other person losing something uh, in, in translation or just in the, in the process of communicating. Um, the fact that, especially, um, probably especially leaving the Utoja station, is so concerned with translation, as you said, with um, miscommunication, misunderstandings, 
makes it perhaps easier to translate because it's easier to translate a text that's so keenly self-aware of the limitations of translation, but also of its potential. There's humor in it. So much of the humor, so much of the tragedy, so much of the comedy of the novel comes from that. That, of course, it comes across in the translation. I don't know. It's, Spanish is a is a is a, another case entirely, and yeah. I see why it's complicating, complicated, and perhaps confusing. But in French, we don't have that. There's another set of of potential issues, but not that one. about the uh, Herman Hesse's story that you mm-hmm. mentioned earlier, uh, Yakuta, and the fact that it also becomes a film uh, in the novel. And uh, I read the novel and thought about this passage for a very long time, thinking that it was made up, right, the, the film that you imagined. And then one day I came across uh, this film that your, your father made with the same name. Uh, so I'm very much interested in this idea that it's a translation. It's also set in pre-war Europe, and there's this you know, transmutation taking place there. So I was wondering what you were trying to do with this, uh, particularly in relation to what you said earlier about the fact that you were kind of ventriloquizing um, uh, the voices of, of the parents. Yeah, I'm glad, I kind of love the film. It's not really like I describe, my dad is kind of an amateur filmmaker, but the, the, the film that I describe is doesn't, I mean, kind of is like, like the actual film, but what fascinated me about the film was the fact that it was all these psychologists and analysts from the Mendel Foundation <laughs> getting dressed up in like period costumes and going to the Topeka Zoo, which also shows up in the novel in different ways, but, you know, and, and making the making the film. But um, I don't know why I so wanted to use, because also like it is kind of like, I basically use my dad's dissertation I'm like the only person who ever read his dissertation, <laughs> but but also it has that incredible driver's ed manual, which is like it's real text, which is like the soaring crazy thing. But but it, but but the I think one of the things that made it feel relevant to me, and the kind of thematic of film is is again the theme of framing, um, you know that come like from the Duccio, but the 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 framing of the shots and. Um, the the framing or the collapsing of the frame and the you know the, the people speak about a therapeutic frame and the therapist holding the frame and one of the big relationships in the book is the kind of collapse of a clear frame and Jane's relationship with Seema and then dramas of reframing have always seemed to me to be kind of like what fiction is so I think part part of the appeal of translating the um, the film is it one is it was another kind of media history opportunity and um two it created an opportunity to emphasize the inner a different kind of intergenerationality in the movie which is like klaus's relationship to europe and european jewry which was like a way of getting that represented um but then also the kind of thematic of framing which is to me the kind of central motif of the book also lent itself to an emphasis on his amateur cinema practice. There's also an important moment where he thinks he's seeing, he, he thinks he's filming his mother, you know, who died when he was very young. And then he sees himself walk into the frame and realizes that what he thought was, again, it's another first person, third person shift or whatever. So it's some, 
series of those things um, made it gave it a place in the in the book. I should have brought the film. It's pretty. It's, it's a pretty, amazing. Yeah. It is. So were you able to watch it? Is it online somewhere? Yeah, yeah I didn't. Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I think there's a final question. Just okay. Thank you so much. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your revision process and like um, what do you do? Like, do you take out Adam's thoughts and put them in a line and see the evolution, or you know, like, yeah. what kind of things do you, do you do usually in your process? Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't know really. I mean, I um, I know that that with prose. I, I can, I mean, I know this is probably a very boring way to answer the question, but it's true that one of the biggest compositional differences is there is a thing that sometimes happens with prose where I'm like, I can write this out badly and fix it later, mm. which is not even conceptually coherent for, like there's no writing mm. the poem badly and fixing it <laughs> later, right? Um, and actually like, like the two, in terms of really obvious painfully obvious insights about compositional differences for me. The other thing that was really hard for me when I started writing novels is I, you know, like when I'm working on poems, I read all the poems in the book back to the moment where I'm working on the poem. And I, you can't do that every time, or I can't, you get lost if you're trying to, you don't have time and you get lost. So like my, my main composite, like one of my big insights in the difference between poetry and prose is that prose has more words <laughs> but but what I mean but so the way that so there there are with poetry like I can't generate I, I just can't go on if I don't have the solution to the line it doesn't mean that the line is good it just means it's good like so that there's a there's a different relationship to ongoingness and composition for me between the two genres um, which is also why I sometimes like I mean, I usually don't take assignments because I'm worried that like I won't, usually I don't do it because I'm like, well, I won't have an idea, but then it'll be hard for me to throw it away because I'll be like not courageous. But sometimes I really like having an assignment because with prose, like I can force something. I mean, I might have to throw it away anyway, but it, it's possible. It's still like I can hold out hope while I'm writing it that if it's at least conceptually interesting and then I spend a whole lot of time on the phrasing, I might make at least a discovery that's useful. So... I, I just mean to say, like with like um, leaving the Atocha station, I wrote the I wrote a version of the book in a few months. You know, just kind of like all came out, and then it took a couple years to revise it. And that wouldn't be a, I wouldn't know what that would mean. I don't know what the poetic equivalent of that would mean be compositionally. I I think that novels become writable from. I think the three novels that I've written have become writable for me when I have certain, when I realize that things I've made often thinking of them as discrete form a constellation. And then there's a kind of, go, then there's a kind of like framing, like then, then I can, I can start to write the, not like I know what the connection is, but I just like, I have, I have a territory of concern I have like these pattern things about like extreme speech or I start to see like how a frame might recur as a motif. And then if I have enough pattern, I can go on. Um, but I have no idea how one gets to that place initially. Like I've, the, I've written a couple of stories, which is pretty new for me. And each time I really hoped I was writing a novel, I was very disappointed <laughs> to realize that there wasn't really, I mean, I could go on, but it wasn't the right 
thing to do or whatever. But I, it's something about like it's something about like on on ongoingness, which I think is like my like Wittgenstein, like that 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 notion of being able to go on for me is kind of like that's my fallen synonym for inspiration. And that's why a lot of the poems I've written are serial, that idea of being able to un unfold it and the novels feel somewhat similar. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, the best and worst thing about it, I, I don't know if those of you who write primarily criticism feel similarly or differently, is that like having written something doesn't teach me anything about the next. I mean, it teaches me something if I find the next thing, but there's just like, it, I don't, it really does seem possible that like I won't write another novel to some people's great relief, you know? <laughs> um, but 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 maybe but maybe I will, you know. I mean, I and I did. I, the only the last thing I was going to ramble is that the Topeka School was different because I felt I actually wanted to write the novel, which might make it a lesser book. You know, that's a dangerous thing to want in a way. But like I because I I I tried many times and stopped many times. And this configuration of personal things and formal things had to happen for it to become writable. But the other two novels I very much didn't intend to write until they were, the bulk of them were written. I was in a kind of denial about it that let them get written. Well, on the subject of ongoingness, let's um, let this conversation go on to uh, the cocktail just um, outside. Yeah. We have a small stand of Shakespeare and Company uh, just outside. Um, with uh, Ben's and Yakuta's books. Um, I'm sure they'd be happy to sign them if, uh, if you buy them. Um, please join me in thanking Ben Lana and Yakuta Yukimoto. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just three euro a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.